the king is our sermon in these moments. I wonder if I could ask you, who or what do you watch to make sense of things? <laughs> the anchor person on CNN or Fox News is a bad choice. The front pages of any newspaper you care to name is also inadequate. And every pastor, including myself, is flawed. So who or what do you watch to make sense of things? Well, I would submit to us this morning that the only one worthy to be watched that we could make sense of things is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the King of kings, and he is the Lord of lords, and we have the rare opportunity to watch him in his word, the scriptures. For whether you're in the Old Testament or the New Testament, you will see Jesus. He's at the center of the redemption story from Genesis through Revelation. In the game of chess, players keep their eyes on the king game pieces. A chess player guards his own king and seeks to capture his opponent's king. <laughs> you and I will only be able to make sense of the things which matter most. What things? I'll tell you. Where you came from, why you are here, where you are going, where earth came from, why the earth exists, and where is earth going to wind up. You'll only make sense of those questions that are worth asking if you keep your eyes on the king. His name is Jesus. When we fail to keep our eyes on the king and we seek to make sense of life without the king, we are like the motorist who is driving from Linden Pingling International to go to the British Colonial. And she wants to know the distance in miles where she is away from the British Colonial. You would be like the person who was driving, who was referencing the mile markers on JFK Highway, but those mile markers were moving. That is what it's like to seek to make sense of things without having our eyes on an immovable king. King Jesus is, of course, the same yesterday, uh, today, and forever. It is Dr. Reynold Showers who, in his most helpful little book titled, What on Earth is God Doing?, that he correctly points out that a war is now waging between God and Satan. And currently, both God and Satan are saying the same thing. I'm sovereign. The ultimate purpose of history is for God to glorify himself by demonstrating his sovereignty. The demonstration of God's sovereignty will include the earth being restored to her original condition, the reversal of all of what the fall into sin messed up, humans being made spiritually alive, physical death being abolished, 
human rule over creation being corrected, humans being removed from Satan's kingdom and placed instead into God's kingdom, Satan being out of the picture and God ruling unopposed. See why you have to keep your eye on the king to make sense of things? So let's do that together right now. Let's look at the king. Hebrews 2, verses 5 through 9 will help us to do exactly that. And before I get into those verses, let me just tell you, preview, what we're going to see in these verses. Three things. Number one, ruler, the king in charge. Number two, royalty, the king in waiting. And number three, redeemer, the king as sacrifice. Under Roman numeral one, the first of our three points today, ruler, the king in charge. Please consider with me Hebrews 2, verse 5. For he, God the Father, did not subject to angels the world to come concerning which we are speaking. There will be a time when the Father will subject all things to King Jesus. We're not there at the moment, but it's going to be a wonderful time when it comes. It says in this verse something called the world to come. I wonder what that is. When you search other scriptures and pay attention, you find out that the world to come is a future, thousand-year, literal, earthly kingdom of King Christ. We have other scriptures, of course, that talk about this. And in Revelation 20, verses 1 through 6, we read... Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. Then I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of the testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God. And those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand, and they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these things, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and a Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. Oh, yes, a literal kingdom is coming and it will transform everything. This world to come that we are expecting is going to be utterly spectacular. Jesus Christ himself as king is going to rule this new earth for 1,000 years. Plus, according to these verses, Jesus is going to graciously share a little bit of his rulership authority with Christians who have taken him as savior by faith. How marvelous this world to come is going to be a very, very long-awaited improvement on the world which we have now. Here 
are just a few Bible-predicted highlights of the future thousand-year kingdom, also known as the world to come. Number one, Jesus literally ruling as Earth's king. No Democrats, no Republicans. No FNMs, no PLPs. No DNAs. Did I forget anybody? Jesus one day will literally rule as Earth's king. By the way, the angels will not rule Earth in that kingdom. Verse 5a tells us, makes it very clear, the Father doesn't will for them to rule it, but he, ruled, he wills for his Son, our Savior, to rule it. And in this wonderful, literal rule of King Jesus on earth, there will be unprecedented righteousness and obedience and holiness, truth, and an unprecedented fullness of the Holy Spirit. But that's not all. In the world to come, this kingdom of Jesus coming to earth, God will provide peace and joy and comfort and justice and glory. There will no longer be any curse on creation. Animals that are now meat eaters will revert to what they were made to be, plant eaters. No weeds. That deserves an amen. No hurricanes, no earthquakes, no pollution, nor no birth defects. Human lifespan in this wonderful coming kingdom will be elongated. Physical death in this kingdom will only be a judgment of God against rare and open rebellion against King Jesus. Funeral homes will virtually go out of business in this kingdom. There'll be unified language and worship. By the way, as I'm going through this list, I don't know how in the world anyone can believe that these kind of changes are going to go on in a human heart. There are Christians, Bible-believing Christians, who say there won't be a literal thousand-year kingdom of Christ. The only kingdom they expect is in the rule of Jesus in their hearts. You know what that's like? That's like saying that the whole Caribbean Sea can be stuffed into a swimming pool. Going on, the world which is to come, the kingdom of Jesus which is coming along, will have greater meaningful work and increased economic prosperity according to the will of God. And the Jews will be living peacefully, unopposed in all of the God-promised real estate in the Middle East. There'll be increased solar and lunar light. <laughs> and so let me call you chess players chess players, to figure out what's going on around you now. You must keep your eyes on the king. When he takes his rightful throne in Jerusalem, the throne of David, and when he begins to rule earth as king over the earth, then the far from ideal current conditions which the fall into sin brought on will be removed, remedied, restored. And the world to come will make the world today look as run down as the church van without doors and an engine rusted that was parked for a time on West 
avenue behind our church. At Christmas, every Christmas, we sing joy to the world and the words contained in it, and heaven and nature sing, and heaven and nature sing, and heaven and heaven and nature sing. The problem is, I hate to break it to you, that heaven and nature were not singing when Christ was born. And they have not been singing since. The night that the Lord Jesus' birth took place, nature was not singing. Humming, maybe, but not singing. You know why I know that? Because that particular night when Jesus Christ was born, and every single night since that night, sometime, somewhere, lions were eating lambs. And hurricanes were leveling houses. And storms were sinking ships. And humans were hurting and even killing other humans. And graves were swallowing corpses. The truth is, heaven and nature singing awaits King Jesus ruling the earth for a thousand years in what we call the millennial kingdom. The time when King Jesus is ruler and the King of Kings and is in charge will be the long-awaited time when heaven and nature will sing loudly. A chorus of the choir of humans combined with the choir of nature itself. I'm looking forward to that. To get a picture of this healing of creation at the coming of the king, I want to read to you two verses from the prophet Isaiah. Prophet Isaiah 49, verse 13. Shout for joy, O heavens, and rejoice, O earth. Break forth into joyful shouting, O mountains. For the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. And then Isaiah 55, verse 12. For you will go out with joy and be led forth with peace. And the mountains and the hills will break forth into shouts of joy before you. And all the trees of the field will clap their hands. Oh, yes, heaven and nature will sing when the king comes to establish his kingdom. And so we must remember, in the meanwhile, to keep our eyes on the king. Because in so doing, we can make sense of things. So, so far, we've considered ruler, the king in charge. The world can be ruled by God unopposed, and one fine day, the world will be ruled by God unopposed. So this brings us to our second point, and it is this, royalty, the king in waiting. Verses 6 through 8, Hebrews 2. But one who has testified somewhere saying, What is man that thou rememberest him? Or the son of man that thou art concerned about him? Thou hast made him for a little while lower than the angels. Thou hast crowned him with glory and honor and hast appointed him over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet for in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. But now we do not yet see all things subjected to him. Queen Elizabeth II 
of the United Kingdom is now 92 years old. She has reigned for 65 years. Her eldest son, Charles, the Prince of Wales, is next in line for the throne. And Charles has been the king-in-waiting for 70 years. Should Charles be passed over, his eldest son, Prince William, Duke of Cambridge, would be made king. But let me point out the obvious. There is a big difference between the situations of the King Jesus Christ and the possible kings, Prince Charles and Prince William. Charles, in my opinion, will likely not be made king, although he's been the king-in-waiting for 70 years. And William perhaps will be made king. We don't know yet. But the Lord Jesus definitely will be made king on earth. Why? Because God the Father has willed it to be so. Jesus is the king in waiting. But not waiting to see if it will happen. Rather, it's waiting to see when it will happen. Psalm 24 is a very interesting messianic psalm. And in verses 8 to 9, listen to what it says. Who is the king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. On the east wall of the old city of Jerusalem, where the Kidron Valley runs, opposite the Mount of Olives, there is an ancient door, an ancient gate that is invisible because it's lots of feet under the current ground. This is the gate that Messiah King will enter when he assumes the throne of David to be king of the earth. The next verse helps us understand more about that. Zechariah 14, verse 4. In that day, the day of Christ's second coming, in that day, his, Jesus' feet, will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives will be split in its middle from east to west by a very large valley so that half of the mountain will move toward the north and the other half toward the south. I remember standing with Beth at that particular on the Mount of Olives, looking at that eastern gate that only has a modern gate above the ground, but the ancient doors, the ancient gate, are well below the surface, blocked with dirt and rocks. And I remember our Jewish guide saying this. The Radisson Hotel was going to build a five-star hotel on the Mount of Olives right here. But they did a seismological study, and they found there's a huge Fissure, crack, fault line below the surface. I looked at Beth. She looked at me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When the Lord Jesus, when the king returns and he lands his feet on the Mount of Olives, the scripture prophet Zechariah says when that happens, bam, that rift, that fault line opens wide. And God moves the north part of the Mount of Olives north and the south part of the Mount of Olives south and creates a 
a clear pathway for King Jesus to walk not in the modern eastern gate that we can see, but through the ancient doors, the ancient gate that's below the surface. <laughs> yeah, that's worth applause. The king in waiting. Now let's look at the last, uh, or again at verses 7 and 8, pardon me, that we've read. Thou hast made him for a little while lower than the angels. Thou hast crowned him with glory and honor and hast appointed him over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet. For in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. But now, but now, we do not yet see all things subjected to him. We have a king in waiting. And in this current time of King Jesus being in the waiting mode, these verses tell us that humans are a little lower than the angels, verse 7a. And humans have God-given glory and honor, verse 7b. And humans have the care of God's creation, 7c. And humans have lost our previous rule over creation due to the fall into sin in Eden in Genesis 3. But there's more. In this current time of King Jesus being the king in waiting, we live in a fallen world. It isn't what God made it to be back in the Garden of Eden. It's a world that is twisted away from God, and the playing field of our everyday lives is not level. It's tilted toward evil. And sin's curse has seeped into everything. Everything is smudged, smeared, scratched. And currently, while Jesus is the king in waiting, we all are far, far from operating under 100% of the manufacturer's specs 100% of the time. You might say that nature has needed an oil change for over 6,000 years. Scripture pictures all this condition while King Jesus is waiting. It pictures that looking a lot like a pregnant woman who is going through labor pains which are associated with imminent childbirth. Currently, the creation is not businesslike in peace. Actually, creation is bent over in pain moment, on any given day, if we're honest, whether we live in the Caribbean or Africa or Europe or Asia or South America, if someone were to ask us on any given day, is everything in order? We would have to realistically answer no. It's all out of order. Mother Nature is screaming in childbirth. She is not singing in cradle rocking. That's far from encouraging. But what is encouraging is that Christ's rule will one day soothe the creation, which is currently screaming. And I love how it says in the verse, it's just for a little while that planet Earth and all that is on it and in it is out of control. Because 
(laughs) There's a king in waiting. And what's now out of order will be set straight. And that's not an if, that's a when. So to review, we've seen so far ruler, the king in charge, verse 5. Royalty, the king in waiting, verses 6 through 8. And last, redeemer as the king as sacrifice. Redeemer, the king as sacrifice, verse 9. But we do see him who has been made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus. Because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Because Jesus is risen and now seated at the Father's right hand in heaven, none of us currently can see him. So please hear me now. Soon I'll be taking my seat. For a little while, Jesus was made lower than the angels by taking on humanity, by being born of a woman, by living on earth, and by setting aside the use of some of his divine attributes. It was because Jesus accepted humanity and physical birth and residence on the earth and the non-use of some of his abilities as God that Jesus could suffer and die and be crowned with glory and honor. Jesus, Redeemer, the King is sacrifice. You know, in human history... There is no shortage of examples of king's subjects who died for their kings. But Jesus is the only example of a king dying for his subjects. Maybe you're here this morning and you're wondering about where you stand with this king the one who we're saying is a redeemer, the one who we are saying is the sacrifice. To be redeemed is to be bought out of the slave marketplace of sin where we all were born and to be given emancipation, set free to know Jesus Christ, to love Jesus Christ, to serve Jesus Christ and not to ever have to go back to the slave marketplace of sin again. That's the good news of the Bible. And the persons who are here this morning, perhaps they want to get in on that emancipation, in on that freedom from slavery, in on that forgiveness of sin. There's only one king who can do it. And he's the savior. Because that king was the sacrifice on the cross with his blood to pay for our sin. Take that gift by the hand of faith in Christ. I'm not talking about joining a church or getting baptized or doing good works. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about saying, I cannot get myself out of the slave marketplace of sin, but Jesus can. He's my king. I want to make him my savior. And trust him. Like a little child. When our children were little, we wanted them to learn how to swim. So very, very young. In our daughter's case, when she was just six months old, we took her to the swimming pool teach her how to swim and teach J.D. how to swim five years later. 
And you know what we would get when they were accustomed to the water and at that swimming pool? I would get into the shallow end and our child was on the deck of the pool. I'd say, jump. Jump. I got you. Jump. And when the child chose to jump, knowing that she couldn't fully swim yet, when the child jumped, knowing that he couldn't fully keep his head above water, treading water yet, when they jumped into my arms, they were putting their faith in me. That's what we need to do with Jesus. You ever done that? Earlier in this sermon, it was mentioned that the only way to make sense of a chess game is to keep your eyes on the kings, plural. And the fact is that the only way to make sense of life and death and eternity is to keep your eye on the king, singular, the Lord Jesus Christ. We who know him by faith, we who have jumped into his arms, as it were, into the shallow end of the pool, we who know our sins are forgiven by his grace. We must keep our eyes on the king, our king, to make sense out of life and death and eternity. And so may I urge you to keep your eyes on Jesus, ruler, royalty, redeemer, Actually, chronologically, we could flip those three in the order of them, right? We would say, Redeemer, he was the king who was the sacrifice. Royalty, he is the king in waiting. And last, ruler, he will be the king in charge. Lord Jesus, thank you for being the Godhead's designated king. Thank you that you were the sacrifice for sin. Thank you that currently you are the king in waiting. And thank you, Jesus, that one day you will be the king in charge. Help us, Lord Jesus, to keep our eyes on you. Help us, Spirit of God, to be good king watchers. For we pray this for our good and for the glory of God's name. Amen.